Hello again, everyone. This is Joyce Davis, Pen Live's opinion editor, coming to you again with another episode of Battleground PA. As usual, we have our esteemed pundits with us, Rajette Harris representing the lofty Democrats and Jeffrey Lord here, uh, a big Trump fan, right? And so we're going to be joined also by John Cole. He is editor of something called Politics PA, and I think a lot of you know about it already, but we'll explore that. We'll be back to take up some important issues related to both uh, the Democrats and the Republicans in 2020. Stay tuned. This is Battleground PA, a pen live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, everyone, we are back, and we have here again Rajette Harris, Jeffrey Lord, and someone called John Cole. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Good, good to Good to see you all. Now, let's start with Mr. Cole. Mr. Cole, can you please give us a little bit of your background? Tell us who you are and what is Politics PA? Absolutely. Well, first off, I'd like to thank you for having me this morning, uh, anytime in the Harrisburg area. Uh, I've, I always listen to you guys regardless when I'm not in Harrisburg. That's but I good love, to know. You know I love reading uh, <laughs> Penn Live. Word, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I'm with Politics PA. I'm the managing editor there. That uh, website has been around for over a decade. I've been at the helm uh, since July of 2018. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I was a reporter for the Northeast Times in Northeast Philadelphia. So anyone who's from the Philadelphia area knows uh, that section of the city. That's where I'm born and raised as well. And I got my degree in journalism from Temple University. But about Politics PA, of course – um, again, it's a website where we really do try to cover everything involved in state politics. So that means a state legislature mm-hmm. to the you know congressional races, Senate, governor, anything, and presidential politics, of course, because we know we're how, a battleground state. Absolutely. That's right. yeah. We're going to play a very, very big role in this yes, next absolutely. election. We've seen the Trump campaign come back many a times, and a lot of Democrats are going to start to focus on the state, all the presidential candidates, very soon, soon as I guess the first Super Tuesday ends and we, as we inch closer to that April 28th primary. So we try to cover all of that and get the biggest stories and covered on politics. So you're PA. really close to the ground on all this. Now, one of the things to start us out in our discussion, we've been talking a lot. We've been talking a lot here about the economy and about, you know, um, the affordable care and health care and uh, the environment, climate, I mean, everything. But from your perspective, as you look at 2020 and the presidential race, along with the congressional race, what do you see as those top issues involving that, that really are important for Pennsylvanians? So I guess the two top issues from the jump would be the economy and health care. Now, I think the answers do vary on what side of the aisle you lean on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, and are we, you leaning on any side of the aisle? Let's just get that no, out there. Okay. No, absolutely not. <laughs> All right. I got, All right. <laughs> my degree in journalism tells me I cannot, of course. Okay. Just the facts. Exa- just the exactly. Facts. <laughs> but um, no, I would say those two issues. But I think it's important to note whatever side of the aisle you're on kind of depends what you think is the most important issue. Mm-hmm. We make it a point to cover every single state committee meeting. And I think that's where you really find out on, you know, what are the state committee people? What are they trying to drum up for support? What's the message they want to bring out to the voters of the state? Mm-hmm. And the most recent committee meeting was last month for Republicans and Democrats, and I covered both. And Republicans talked a lot about the economy. They keep talking about the Trump economy from Chairman Lawrence Tavis to every uh, different congressional person that spoke there. They really stress about the economy, and they talked about impeachment as that was wrapping up at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But they certainly want to make the case that the economy is better, and they believe it is due to President Trump's policies. Now, Democrats, on the other hand, their meeting was a week after the Republicans. 
they didn't spend as much time on the economy as I'd say on healthcare. Healthcare was mm. definitely their number one issue. And if I'm not mistaken, they just rolled out a campaign too called PA Dems Care. Now, it's not only about healthcare, but they're also talking about other issues, union rights, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But I think healthcare is definitely something they talked about a lot that night. And even there was recent polling, I believe it was last month, from Franklin and Marshall, Dr. Terry Madonna. I know you guys yep. had him on yeah, we bring him the on. program. Mm -hmm. And he had the number one issue for Democrats as healthcare. So I think it's pretty, I think at least to me, it seems that Democrats by and large are going to talk about healthcare a lot leading into 2020, uh, April and November. And for Republicans, they're going to talk a lot about the economy. All right. Well, let's bring in our esteemed pundits here, the wise people here to talk about. Do you agree? I mean, Rajette, is it health care for the Democrats? Jeffrey, is it the economy? But let's start with Rajette. What did he say about health care there? Is that what you, your Democrats are worried about? I think health care is important. Um, we here in Dauphin County had our endorsement meeting just this past weekend. And um, health care was one of the issues. But one of the bigger issues, I would argue, is the process of law, the due process, um, sort of where we are, uh, wh where we stand with how uh, things are, are done, um, how um, the current administration um, kind of uses the law to benef benefit oneself. Um, mm -hmm. So that came up a lot. Uh, the economy also comes up, but it's a little bit different. It's not about what the current numbers say. It's about the access to opportunities, mm. the access to good paying jobs. It's not just having a job. But what's the quality of that job? Okay. So I would argue a lot of the issues are the same, but the both sides view them differently. Okay. So, Jeffrey, did you agree it's the economy? And, and are you getting a little scared here no. with, with the plunging stock market? Well, that. I uh, am. Which, well, well, that, which is a separate issue. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I suppose this is a sidelight. My great-grandfather, whom, of course, I never knew, died in the Spanish flu epidemic of mm -hmm. 1918, mm -hmm. which was a real pandemic. And the problem with something like this is as much as a government and our government is pretty advanced in trying to do this, tries to control it. I mean, how in the world can you control somebody getting on an airplane? I mean, and he died in a time when there were, there were no planes. Right, I mean, people right. are flying all around the globe here. This is a serious problem that is, you know, really out of the control yeah, of and what, anybody. And what we're seeing is it may not be being contained. It may be only beginning to, to right. spread. but. But I do have to say, you know, like it or not, whoever's in charge is going to say, what are you doing about that, it? Well, that's and are right. you managing this crisis? That's right. right. And, and I think they're, I mean, you know, the, the health organizations, the HHS, et cetera, I mean, I think they're all Johnny on the spot. But when you've got uh, this breaking out in places as disparate as Italy and South Korea, uh, what's that tell you? you know? Well, it tells you it's all over the place, but they, but you want to feel like someone's in charge. Yes. And here's the yes. other thing I, I think, and this is where I think Rajat was getting to. You want to make sure that the person in charge is really getting solid, unbiased guidance, that people aren't afraid to tell them the truth about what it is so that and that they're not just, you know. Well, my, my impression so is that the, yeah. pre the president is listening to serious medical people here mm -hmm. who, who know their stuff. They're not, I mean, I have no idea whether they're Republicans or Democrats. They're health experts, and that's exactly who you have but, to be listening but to. But go ahead, Rajat. You had something. Well, you know, going back to what you mentioned about the stock market, um, the one way to get people to vote or pay attention is to, um, I don't, I'm not saying mess with, but something affect their pocketbooks. Yeah, um, right. My mother is um, retired, and she might not watch the stock market up and down, but she told me yesterday 
because this, the market is dropping, she was going to check her 401k. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is an issue where talking points and distractions isn't going to work because people are, go- are going to feel it. Yeah. 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 Well, let, let's 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 talk a little bit. We talked about the economy, but I want to also zoom back into this this healthcare thing, because that leads us right into the Democratic um, goings on and Bernie. And Bernie is out there on fire, it seems. But there's still a lot of concern, right, about what Bernie will mean for America and whether he can really beat a Donald Trump. Now, John, Bernie, how will he burn play in Pennsylvania from what a, you're seeing? I think it's still a good question, but you could certainly make the case that he's gaining momentum as time has moved on. Even in Pennsylvania? Yeah, there was a recent poll from the University of Wisconsin that was released a couple of days ago. It included three battleground states, and Bernie was actually in the in, uh, actually in the lead in Pennsylvania's hmm. Democratic primary. It was a narrow lead, yeah, just yeah. a couple of points over former Vice President Joe Biden and Michael Bloomberg, who were neck and neck. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty significant drop-off after that. I think a lot of pundits and most people would agree polling would say that former Vice President Joe Biden entered Pennsylvania definitely as a front runner. The Scranton roots, right, um, right. I guess, being dubbed he's, Pennsylvania's he's third, boy. Yeah. third Pennsylvania's <laughs> right. third senator for right. you know how long, right. and he also made it a point. Really, I mean, heck, he's his uh, campaign's headquartered in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has the most endorsements of any presidential candidate in Pennsylvania. He already has a majority of the state's Democratic congressional delegation that endorsed him. Five of the nine endorsed him. Of the four that didn't endorse, none of them endorsed anyone else yet. So Biden at least has all the establishment, it seems, support in that realm. But uh, but Bernie's certainly picking up momentum. He's coming on strong. Is that surprising to you, Rajat? I mean, he's been running for president for eight years now. So in a sense, no. Um, And one way, and I'm not saying, I'm not comparing him to President Trump, but the one thing they do have in common are their bases. Their bases absolutely love and adore them. Um, there's nothing that they can do that their base isn't going to support them. Um, so he's been able to keep that base over the past eight years. And he's at this point, he's trying to reach out and grow that. And you must be happy, uh, <laughs> Jeffrey, to, to have Trump matched up with the burn. Well, that just, possibility. Just huh? say Orville Redenbacher and myself are becoming very good friends. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of popcorn here to watch this. You're right. Um, I, I really do think, I mean, just listening to the two of you right here, um, to John and Rogette, you're describing the Democratic establishment and you're describing the base. And I think you're, you're both right. And what you've got here in Pennsylvania and around the country is, for lack of a better phrase, and maybe I'm, I'm overestimating it here, a civil war of sorts, a brewing civil war, because the Democratic establishment is truly panicked about this. They don't know what to do. And when you have an energetic base, as Bernie has— I mean, these these people want revolution, as it were. Well, we want excitement, right, in, 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 on both of the candidates. But go ahead, Rochette. Well, one thing I want to bring up, too, is when he ran last time against Hillary Clinton, it was only two of them hmm. versus now we still have six, seven candidates. If you actually combine the bases of the other six, seven candidates, it's actually a larger portion of the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, Bernie's by himself. He's in that lane. And as we saw, even with the last debate, your Elizabeth Warrens and stuff, they're not going after Bernie for whatever reason. 
Um, they're going after each other instead of going after <laughs> oh, Bloomberg. <laughs> but go ahead. You, you. No, I think I just wanted to echo what you said there because I think it's spot on where right, like in uh, 2016, it was mano y mano, Hillary versus Bernie. And Bernie was relatively kind of unknown prior to 2016. How many people really knew much about him? Right. And he still garnered about 44 percent of the vote, I believe, in that primary, which is pretty significant against Clinton being a last name that's been known in uh, national politics for decades prior to that. But I think, like you said right now, it's important to note that it's a crowded field. And like I know people don't like describing politics and races as just like a lane to run in. But right now, Bernie very much has a specific lane where he's definitely the most progressive liberal candidate, whatever you would like to say, and the more establishment candidates. There's several of them vying for the same thing. By the time Pennsylvania's primary hits April 28th, there's not going to be as many candidates as there are right now. So we'll have to see how many of them will be left standing because if it's six or seven, I think most people would agree and I'd like to hear what you guys think. It would probably benefit Bernie in a more crowded field, but a more narrow field would most likely favor perhaps one of the more establishment or moderate candidates. If yeah. it gets down to one-on-one, I mean, whomever the other one is, then I think uh, he may have a problem. But as long as you've got this many candidates there and there's no definitive single opponent to him, he benefits. You guys tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I really have a strong sense that Americans, be they Republican or Democrat, are yearning for some big ideas, for people who will stand for, even if it's out there, they're yearning for something more than just safe. Am I wrong about that? No, I think that's why Donald Trump got elected in the first place. And I do think that's why Bernie has the kind of support he has. I do think that there is that commonality out there. And is that, does that change depending upon your age? Is it the young people pushing this or are or, or older people really ready to see some kind of revolution? What, what do you think, Rich? It's definitely younger. Um, mm-hmm. You can see that even in the exit polls uh, with the, the recent uh, Nevada caucuses. Um, Bernie won among younger groups. Even where he gained among African-Americans, it's the younger aged African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And Latinos. What about the Latinos? Because that was the other thing we were going to talk about. Bernie seems to have pulled in, at least in Nevada, a sizable Latino uh, population. Where did that come from? But even so, if you look at the breakdown, it's younger. It's younger. It's the age. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do think right. that's a key dynamic. So we've got a generational. Have you seen that? Are you seeing that in Pennsylvania as well? A generational divide on how they're approaching this? Absolutely. And it's kind of fascinating that you have Bernie Sanders being the candidate who's in his late seventies, <laughs> pulling the support from right, so right. pulling support from the younger generation. Being you know millennial myself, I know a lot of people. In my age range at our Democrats certainly have jumped on Bernie's support. And I mean, some of them supported him in 2016. And I think he's kind of built upon that young support. And being in Philadelphia, a more progressive, you know, the most liberal region of the state, I think it's worth noting that, of course, you'd expect him to play well in certain areas like that. So I think it's definitely the regional divide. Well, there'll be a regional divide. We can get into that maybe later. But Mm -hmm. the generational thing is definitely something I'm seeing in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is um, the younger you are, you love his ideas. You like what he's saying. But the older voters are looking at, well, how are you going to do it? Mm. They want the details where I would argue the younger voters – I don't, I don't want to say they don't care as much about the details, but it's not as important as the idea. Experience, uh, you know, just life experience. Yeah. And if you're yeah. younger and you have no idea what the reality of socialism has been around the world, uh, it all sounds great, you know. But if you're older and you see, I mean, just this comment from Bernie Sanders this week on Cuba. Yeah. And, well, he 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 had a literacy program. Castro had a literacy program. 
I mean, yeah, he also dragged people out of their beds at three in the morning, put them up against a wall and shot them. Yep, yep, uh, yep. But, y- but, but in many ways, you could say similar things about Putin. And right. <laughs> exactly. It seems to get along with him. But exactly. anyway, why don't we stop right here? we got to take a little bit break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about these ideas. But we also need to talk about the rest of the candidates and, of course, our sitting president, Donald Trump. So join us in a few minutes. Hello, everyone. We are back and we have had quite a conversation. And if you would like to join us, there are ways to do that. One is to send us an email at topics at battlegroundpa.org. And you can always join us on Facebook and Twitter at Battleground PA. So join our conversation. But let's get back into it, guys. The, we were talking about the ideas. And one of the things that Bernie, I mean, if you're a young person and you're looking at, what, thirty, forty, fifty $50,000 in college debt, and he's saying, forget it, elect me, it's gone. That is a big idea, right? If you're talking about everybody deserves to have health care. And the point is, is a good one. Other countries, I, in fact, we did an editorial on this, other countries around the world have been able to achieve this, have a quality standard of life and still make sure the lowest is taken care of. Why hasn't an American been able to do that? But he does have these big ideas. Tell me, how are these ideas resonating with Pennsylvanians? And I think it, like you said, the generational divide. And also, I think it depends on the region of the state you're in. Again, I think in mm. Philadelphia, people in the Philadelphia area are much more ready to embrace, or at least the, Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, they're ready to embrace the Medicare for all proposals that Bernie Sanders has kind of put forth. Philadelphia suburbs are a little different, of course, mm-hmm. different demographic there. But I think in the more progressive regions of the state and the younger regions of the state, they like the idea of eliminating college, uh, eliminating student debt, um, making college free. Again, being someone who's young and has a ton of college debt I'm shouldering, I know that it appeals to a lot of people in my age range because they know that when you come out of college, it kind of st- – you know when you sign up for college, you know you're going to have debt. But at the same time, it kind of limits what you're able to do at a certain age. You can't do as many things with all that debt. But you do, I guess, know that signing up. But I think a lot of people like the idea on my age around that issue. I I actually think a lot of people, young people, don't realize that when they're signing up for that debt. They haven't stepped into the real world yet to know it. But but that that gets to Jeffrey's point, too. We've got these big ideas, but grayer heads say, yeah, I heard all of that before. I saw people try to implement it. It didn't work. And how are you going to pay for it, right? And I mean, is that how the Republicans are going to hit back at these great ideas that the Democrats have? Well, I, I, I hope Republicans will stick with the economy and growth and economic growth because that's important. I mean, we discussed this, I guess, last week. And, and after we left, I came across a, a brand new poll that showed that uh, the American people, that, that was the number one issue. They thought the economy was going gangbusters, and they really gave the president high marks for it. I just think that's always the determining issue. I mean, absent nuclear war or something yeah, but, of that but, nature. But but it looks like we've got a nuclear war. Honestly, it looks, I mean, for people, I, I sat here how many years ago when the Great Recession hit. I remember sitting around a table and talking, this looks bad. People are worried now. They are talking about not only the, uh, they're talking recession now with the coronavirus. How, I mean, how is that going to impact? Well, and, and we have yet to see. But But, I mean, the one thing we know is that this is, uh, people are scrambling all over the world to try to figure out how to deal with it. And it's particularly worrisome because China is a dictatorship, mm-hmm. secretive by nature, uh, and we're not really sure what we're getting from them that is accurate. 
that is a problem since that's where this began. Well, people are going to be looking at the Trump administration, but they're also going to be asking the Democratic candidates, what are you going to do about it? How would you do any better? Right. How are they going to respond to that, Rochette? I mean, any, any thoughts? or? Well, just real quick to go back to what Jeffrey just said, I don't think um, that argument's going to work with people under the age of 40. And the reason for that, and I'll bring up uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg because I'm close to his age, even if you're not just in school or just out of school, you still have debt. And even though the economy numbers look good, it's hard to get those jobs to help pay that debt down. And that's why I keep talking about it's not just having a job, it's the quality of that job. It's how much it's paying. Right. Actually, and yeah. and a lot of times uh, Republicans, and not just Republicans, but even older, your established Democrats don't expect you're under 40 to come out to vote. But that's not happening. Um, at least during these primary, they are coming out. They are out. coming. You're seeing because a, it's directly mm-hmm. affecting them. How do you think that's going to play in Pennsylvania, John? Are they going to come out? Well, I was going to say I think it's something that actually even like to pose to both of them. I guess you would assume that young, higher voter turnout with younger voters would definitely benefit the Democrats as of now, wouldn't you think so? Just considering yes. that they seem to be more energized around mm-hmm. Democratic policies now. Let's say if younger voters stayed home, you would imagine that would most likely benefit Republicans. Now, I guess that remains to be seen, but Again, like you were saying, Rajat, if the numbers from the first couple states in the primary process and the caucuses, if it indicates that youth voter turnout's a little higher, Democrats should be at least viewing that as a sign of optimism, I would think. I'm still waiting for Republicans to touch on the issue of why the student debt in the first place, uh-huh. uh, which I call big education. And I just find it very curious that Democrats, they're all for you know free education and all this kind of thing, but they don't want to touch big academics and big education no. because that's, of course, where a lot of their base is. And the last thing they want to do is antagonize these people by saying, you're charging too much money. Yeah, but this this is a this is a live wire. I mean, yeah. everybody's talking about how did we put, I mean, and it's not just the politicians. It's the parents who yeah. allowed their kids to be in these situations that thought this was the ticket. Right. So we got a lot of blame. That's not just going to be political blame, I don't think. That's going to be generational blame. Yes. <laughs> right. But yes. well, we don't want to go back to the way things used to be, though, right. that as a as a student, you have to be come from a wealthy family to be able to go to college. Yeah. That if you, you're or from you a certain family, oh, just go. And I'm not putting down trades. I'm not putting down vocational schools or community college or anything of that nature. But it's not fair to tell a student that doesn't come from a wealthy family that that's your only option. But it is mm-hmm. fair, I think, to say college is going to be different, that it is not going to be four years of parties and, and studying part time and all of this. It's going to be you might have to work and take some courses and it may take you. There needs to be a different model. I mean, that's the thing that we bought into one idea of what an education looks like. And there may be anyway, Democrats are speaking to this. Republicans from Trump, I don't hear him speaking to these issues. Has he talked at all about how to address young people in the debt problem? Uh, I, he's talked about the debt, certainly, but I don't I don't know specifically uh, whether he's included young people in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Betsy DeVos, whom I heard the other week, yep. I mean, she talks about this kind of thing. I mean, and she's the secretary of education. I mean, this is her this is her job, as it were. Yeah. But, you know, when you say days gone by 
in days gone by, it wasn't this expensive to go to college. No, that's true. true. That's true, which needs to be addressed too. But, you know, there are a lot of issues there. Go ahead. I'm sorry, but I guess just my question would be for the Republicans that are trying to drum up support with the younger generation, don't you think at some point in time, maybe the idea of student debt at least maybe would be more of a talking point? Because at least in the Democratic primary, I think we can all agree, even though there's different visions within the the Democratic presidential front runners, there's certainly different visions about how to address college affordability. There's some, uh, again, on the Bernie sect of the party that believe free college, uh, you know, four-year college for all. Some of the more moderate candidates, I think, have proposed conversations of a college affordability, maybe making community colleges free or some things mm-hmm. of that nature mm-hmm. as opposed to put it. But it seems that though it's still a main talking point in the Democratic Party primary where Republicans, I'm sure it's being talked about, but I just don't know if it's been as well, much of a and focal one of the point. Things, Do you know what I'm saying? One of the things that I – I think needs to be addressed, and I know this is sort of heretical, certainly in my parents' generation where they wanted their kids to get a college education. But let me ask the question, is a college education really necessary today? If some kid, you know, to use the slang phrase, uh, learns how to code, um, does he really need to go to X college for four years if he's really good at high tech and computers where he can get a very well-paying job? Uh, and he doesn't need a degree in English literature or whatever. I mean, doesn't it matter though? Again, what field? I guess you ultimately de- decide to pursue. Yes, where I live in sure Northeast, where I live in Northeast Philadelphia, um, many of my uh, classmates I graduated uh, grade school and uh, high school with didn't decide not to go to college because they wanted to do in the, uh, join the trades. A lot of union workers in my neighborhood. Right. So I can tell you, a lot of them elected to not do that, but that's a field where they don't need to get a college right, degree. Right. You know what I'm saying? But there are certain jobs where I think you have to have a college right. degree. And there's also two things. Number one, in some fields, a bachelor's degree is really like a glorified high school diploma. Right. Mm-hmm. It's become that way. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And number that's two, right. again, we shouldn't be telling um, – usually you're the one that says we shouldn't be telling people <laughs> what to do, but we shouldn't be telling students what fields to go into. Um, they should, again, it's the access to opportunity to do right. what they would like to but, do. But I, I get what Jeffrey's saying because, for example, in Germany, Germany has a really extensive, um, what do you call it, apprenticeship pro, you know, pr- programs where kids will get out of uh, a high school. Now, there it's a little bit different because you get tested. Are you ready for co- Are you college material, so right. to speak? And then, or you get channeled to where your your certain gifts lie. And they have a developed apprenticeship program where a kid will get out of high school, go to BMW, put on the white coat, and suddenly make sixty, seventy thousand dollars <laughs> as a technician, right? But my point is, do they want to do that, or are they told to do that? Well, and the- there's a difference. And a lot of people want to do what their passion is, what they want to do. It's not always just about that paycheck. And right. that's what concerns me. Right, but is in Germany, I think they may be told because they may be told if you want government and support. And that's where <laughs> I don't think we right. should be telling people what to do with their right. lives. Yeah, I guess just Holy cow, I'm making a Republican out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we'd bring you guys together. <laughs> John, you were going to say something. I guess just to piggyback a bit off of what Rajette said there is that I, you know, I think to Democrats' points, they believe that it's not fair to tell the kid – that maybe wasn't the straight-A student in high school, you can't do better in college. Right. Because right. who's to say they may not improve their studies? Exactly. You can, or later oh, you, in life. Yeah. So the good thing about the U.S. Mm-hmm. is that you could be 45 years old and decide, now I want to go back to college. You can do it. You can do it. Whereas in other countries, you really, you really can't. That's what was really it that point. President Obama used to always say? Um, that the American dream is for anyone who's willing to work hard yeah. right. and do what is necessary. We all agree on that, right, guys? Right. All right. So let me, let me talk about one thing that's a little disturbing to me. Now, maybe it's not to you, 
uh, Jeffrey, but I do worry <laughs> about this, what we're hearing, and maybe we're not hearing right, that people are being purged if they don't have a kind of loyalty test to the president. Oh, now, my, do I want to talk yeah, about tell, this? Tell us what's going on. Let's, well, let let's me hear start, your perspective. Let honestly. me start with my own story. In the Stone Age of 1992, when I was a senior Bush political appointee at the Department of Housing and Urban Development working for Secretary Jack Kemp, Bill Clinton won the presidential election. The transition begins. And I come into work one fine day, and I am presented with a letter from one Bruce Lindsay. Mr. Lindsay was the national campaign director for Bill Clinton, and it had been announced that when the uh, inauguration day came, he was going to be the new director in the White House of presidential personnel. And the letter said, in essence, Dear Jeffrey, thank you for your government service. Clean out your desk. So you were purged because be- you weren't was, a part of that? Yeah, correct. Okay. And so was every other Bush appointee, right. not only right. there, but elsewhere. Now, let me just read a few headlines for you. Mm-hmm. Obama gives political ambassadors their pink slips, December 2008. Mm-hmm. Obama dismisses Bush Pentagon appointee. Then this one, 78 Obama appointees burrowed into career jobs that government watchdog finds. And another one, resistance from within. This is the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Federal workers push back against Trump. I think those In are- other words, what I'm saying to you is every single president, no matter who they are, has the right to fire all of these political appointees. It happened to me. They were yeah. well within their rights to do it. They don't want people there that are not loyal to the president's agenda. That they're not going to go along with whatever the, 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 the platform or the policies right. are. Right. So, so you I get have that. a right to, to, get, to get them out. I get that, except it seems now I could be, it seems like it's going deeper here. I mean, we, we just had people step up in, in impeachment hearings and talk about the issues that they saw that, that were leading them to do things that were either not unethical as they thought or immoral or then they against should resign. the law. Well, or they should follow the process and testify, right, and, and, and cooperate well, with but Congress. But the notion but- that they're in charge, they're not in charge. They're government employees, as I was. There's one person who sits in the White House, no matter who it is, who put their name on a ballot, campaigned in all 50 states, right. and got elected. No, it's I none think, of them, and it wasn't me. I think your point is well made, but I think Americans, especially when they're talking about things like a coronavirus, or they're talking about things where they want expertise, you don't want the brain power of your government depleted by then by you hold, mere, you, you know, hold the president of the United States accountable, accountable, which we don't seem to be able to do. We tried that, <laughs> right? I mean, we tried it and it didn't work. So he's in there, right? But I mean, that's the concerns we have um, as we go forward, because I think the nation is facing a serious situation now with where we are with the with the economy, with the stock market, and with this real threat of this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to take all hands on deck to battle that. Right. I mean, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, go ahead. Go ahead, Rochette. To sort of broaden this conversation, I think that's why, you know, uh, Donald Trump won the Republican primary when he really truly wasn't a Republican. And this year we have our two leading Democratic candidates aren't really Democrats. Huh. Uh, this wow. is a political yes. party issue. And I've experienced this. Just being a county chair, how dare you have the audacity to think for yourself? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I, this I is must say, this, I, I, this is a this I, is a political uh, party issue, and I do think the American people do want some type of independence. If you're in a leadership position, you should hire people whose opinions and whose expertise you trust. 
Mm-hmm. I, I must say, if Bernie Sanders is nominated, I can't wait to talk to Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't wait to see her say, well, you know, actually, Fidel Castro really wasn't that bad a guy. <laughs> oh, I, but, but John, what, the, what, what Rochelle's saying is, is really interesting. It does look like people are bursting forth, I mean, forcing these parties to change. Oh, I think there's right? no doubt about it. There's, a, I guess, a strong anti-establishment sentiment. And again, this is not just a one-party thing like you both alluded to. This is something where Republicans experienced it in 2016, 2015 with Donald Trump. Although I think you can make the case, though, that Trump to a certain degree benefited from a crowded field too, though, where if it was – you kind of do wonder going back if it was mano y mano – I'm just throwing a couple of the top front runners' names at. Let's say if it was Trump versus uh, Senator Cruz or Trump versus Senator Rubio, perhaps we don't know. I guess what the outcome may have been, but the, there's definitely strong. There's still strong enough anti-establishment sentiment in Democrats and Republicans. And I guess just I guess for Bernie, I think it's worth noting if Bernie's the nominee, and again, well, we have months to decide. Right. Um, it'll be interesting because I think it totally changes the strategy in Pennsylvania specifically. What kind of voters you're ta- not that you don't want to neglect any voter. But the regions of the state will, I think, change of where they're going to focus because I think there's a lot of Democrats in the Philadelphia suburbs that are nervous about a Bernie Sanders yes. candidacy. The one thing, the, the one thing, and, and this is because of my age here that I recall this, and I I probably mentioned it before, but in 1972, when I was uh, in my senior year of uh, going into my senior year at Franklin and Marshall, uh, the Democratic establishment candidate, the Joe Biden of the piece, was Senator Edmund Muskie, the mm-hmm. 1968 yep. VP candidate. The Democratic establishment loved him. They pushed him out of left field, figuratively and literally politically, came Senator George McGovern as an anti-war candidate with all these kids in his army. Uh, they upended him and then faced off against Richard Nixon, who four years earlier had won the presidency by the skin of his teeth with 43% of the vote in a three-man race. He lost Pennsylvania. And lo and behold, in 1972, Richard Nixon carries 49 states, including well, that, Pennsylvania. That's a good history lesson because sometimes young people aren't decisive in making one final thing from Rochette, then we got to wrap up. Um, one thing that I do think the Democrat Party, at least here in Dauphin County, that we're focused on is Yes, we want to uh, defeat Donald Trump in November, but we also want to widen our majority in Congress, and we want to take back the Senate. And there is a you concern. Want it all. My yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a concern, depending on who our presidential nominee is, how that is going to affect right. the down ballot races. Okay. I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I really apologize. One last point, but I think that's maybe that's the reason why we've seen these swing district Democrats endorse Biden because they view him perhaps. Right. Now, maybe they may be wrong, so it's, we may, can't jump to the conclusion yet, but. Connor Lamb, uh, Chrissy yeah, Houlihan, yeah, yeah. both of them endorsed Biden and uh, Matt Cartwright also Called endorsed self-preservation. PA. self-preservation. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, we're going to well, – thank you, John, for coming and joining us. We'll have you back again soon. And, of course, thanks to Rajette and Jeffrey. As usual, you're always wise. And we hope to see you again soon on Battleground PA. Stay tuned. We'll have more scintillating conversation about the elections in 2020.